As we continue our adult series called A Living Sacrifice, today we're going to be talking about no greater love. And of course, when I say that phrase, it brings to mind what love I'm talking about. If you're familiar with Jesus Christ, you understand that that love is the love of Jesus Christ. And there is a scripture, John 15, 13, that sums it up so well. And it's, um, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And we know that because Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins, his friends' sins, that we can live free from the power of sin. Um, And what a great idea, what a great thought that we are the friends of Jesus our Lord. And our lesson is actually going to start with the story of one of the friends of Jesus when he walked here in the flesh on earth. Um, Someone that he was very close to that a lot of people would refer to as the disciple that Jesus loved was John. Um, Now, John had a front row seat to the crucifixion of Jesus. It seems like most of his close followers, his disciples, kind of fled out of fear or watched from a distance, Peter even denying Jesus. But John, this disciple whom Jesus loved, was right there on the front row watching as Jesus suffered and died. And the author of our lesson kind of uh, takes us into the mind of John in that moment. And this is what the author says. It says, In John's sorrow was almost too much to bear as he watched Jesus stumbling along in his blood-stained clothes, struggling to carry his cross. Jesus had loved all the disciples, of course, but John and Jesus had had a special bond. And now, though the rest of the twelve had abandoned him, John remained, following his beloved friend and Lord to the last. John probably felt frightened and helpless as he trudged towards Calvary amid the people crying, the women crying, the people that had known Jesus and, of course, the shouts of the soldiers and the shouts of those who were now condemning Jesus. John could do nothing to save this friend, this man that he loved. He could do nothing to comfort Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was crushed with grief. But at least he would not abandon them in their suffering. This son of thunder raged inside and yearned to rush the Roman soldiers and drive them from Jesus and rescue him. But it would all be in vain, and he knew that very well. He would likely end up on a cross himself if that's the route that he took. Instead, he held Mary and listened in horror to the hammer's sickening thud as the soldiers drove nails through Jesus' hands and feet into the cross. The soldiers then roughly heaved the cross upright and let it fall into the hole dug for it. And there he was, the crucified king of the Jews on a cross between two thieves. John's emotions probably raged, um, probably love and hate and anguish and fear and fury rushed through him. And then he heard Jesus speak, and he was just shocked. Because Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How could Jesus forgive them? In that moment, Christ's all-empowering love came into focus for John. Jesus was dying for everyone on that hill. 
for those who loved him, for those who hated him, and for those who were beating and killing him. He was dying for the whole world, that all would be set free from sin, and there could be no greater sacrifice, because there was no greater love. The story of the crucifixion of Jesus is a paradox. In it, we see overwhelming hate and overwhelming love side by side. These two opposites collide in this moment. Members of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of that time, hated the teaching of Jesus. They slapped him, they beat him, they spit in his face. The Roman soldiers mocked him and slapped him and scourged him, bringing him so close to death before nailing him to the cross. And many watching the crucifixion blasphemed him and mocked him while he hung on the cross. One of the two thieves sharing his fate heaped abuse on him, but he refused to return hate for hate. Instead, he loved. Throughout his great trial of suffering, Love guided all of his actions. He prayed that God would not hold the sin of crucifying him against the soldiers. When one of the thieves had a change of heart toward him, he freely granted him a place of paradise. Even in his own agony, he still thought of his mother and arranged for John to provide for her when he was gone. Until he breathed his last breath and his body lay still, he loved He loved and he forgave in the moment of his suffering, while his suffering was still happening. And that's what makes it, like, even more hard to believe, uh, even more hard to understand, I guess I should say, um, is that in the moment of suffering, he forgave. And in the moment of suffering, he loved the people that were causing his suffering. It wasn't after the fact, and it wasn't after he had time to process forgiveness or to think about it or to get past the pain, but in the moment of pain, Jesus was forgiving. Nothing had forced the Son of God to die on a cross. He went willingly because of love. Jesus said, No one is taking my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. The entire drama of the cross is summed up in one verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There could be no greater love. The gospel is the good news of God's love given to us in Jesus Christ. It is a message of love from the very beginning to the very last. It's not a generic love for human beings generally. But specifically, it is a love that led Jesus to sacrifice himself on the cross to set us free from the power of sin, from both its penalty and its enslaving control, that we could be freed from sin right now as we live on earth and even for eternity. As he said, nobody took his life from him, but he gave it. There's a song, an old song, and it, it, it says that he could have called 10,000 angels, but instead he chose to die for you and me. It was a choice that he made in that moment. He had all power to bring himself off that cross, and instead he chose the cross for us. So how does Christ set us free from the penalty of sin? Well, before salvation, 
we all were under sin, Romans 3.9 tells us, and therefore we were guilty before God, Romans 3.19. Our sin brought God's wrath and a death sentence again against us. It was our sin. It, it The one essential question for everyone then is, how can I be saved from this wrath and death? How can I be saved from the penalty of sin? Uh, Romans, an extremely good book to kind of um, talk about these things, is very... It, Romans is very specific about sin and what you pay when you sin. The wages or the payment for the sin in our life is death. That is the only way to pay for our acts of sin. And Romans is also very clear that every human being has sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God and that we owe a payment for that sin. And yet we can be saved from paying that payment because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. The only way that we can be saved from wrath and death is to become sinless or righteous in God's sight. And where there is righteousness, there is no wrath. There is no punishment. And where there is sinlessness, there is no sentence of death. So, if the only way to be saved is to be sinless, could our salvation ever depend on ourselves? Well, the answer is no. We cannot become righteous and sinless on our own. It cannot happen. So some people may think, I want to be righteous and so that I can be saved. So I'm going to really start pleasing God by obeying his word and doing good deeds and by that become righteous. And you've all heard it, you know, you've heard people say, but I'm a good person. We've heard that before. People say that consistently as in, it's as a way to bypass what we know the payment is. They'll say, well, I'm a good person, so I definitely deserve an eternity in heaven. And so uh, it's like we feel as though God has set uh, the scales of righteousness in heaven where our sin uh, currently weighed down one side. And if we just pile up enough good works and obedience on the other side, then the scales tip in the opposite direction, allowing God to say, oh, now you're righteous in my sight. But you see, that is dependent on us. And there is nothing we can do that will ever tip the scale enough. It's actually very freeing, this lesson, because the stress of trying to think I have to be good enough to pay for the sin that I've done, that, that's a lot of stress, but Jesus takes that stress off of us because he paid the price. If we took the approach that we could be good enough to counteract our sin and we relied on our obedience and our good deeds to become righteous before God, we would experience exactly what Paul told the Jews in his day, those that were relying on their ability to obey God's law to be righteous before him. He said in Romans 3.20, By the deeds of the law, no flesh can be justified in his sight. No flesh can weigh, could, could balance the scale. He said, For by the law is the knowledge of sin. We can outweigh the we can outweigh the sin. In fact, the more we try to do it, the more we realize that we've sinned. In other words, if we rely on our obedience to God's law, in the end it will simply confirm that we are sinners and guilty before God. For God's law does not reveal our righteousness. 
but rather our sinfulness by revealing ever more clearly how we still fail to obey all that is written and showing us that we are still subject to God's judgment. Galatians 3.10 tells us that. So how does trying to perfectly obey God's word give you knowledge of your sin? The more we know about God's word, the more we know that we are sinful. James tells us in James chapter 1 that the word of God is like a mirror. And when we look into it, we need to see that there are things wrong in our lives and we need to have a course correction. See, that's the thing about the word of God. It shines a light on just how sinful we are. There has to be another way of becoming righteous before God. And there is. God, in his love, has provided a way for us to become righteous before him. Romans 3.22 tells us that this becoming righteous before him comes about through faith in Jesus Christ. And though we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, like we read in Romans, we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we become justified. Those scales become balanced freely. It doesn't cost us anything. By the grace of God, which is favor that we don't deserve and that we haven't done anything to deserve, through the redemption or through the payment of our sins that is in Christ Jesus. Our faith in Christ alone, our trusting in and relying absolutely on Christ's redeeming work on the cross to save us, is the basis for our redemption and our justification. It is the basis, trusting in him, completely relying on him, and understanding that there is nothing we could ever do to be good enough, is the foundation of realizing that he paid the price that he paid for us a ransom, he redeemed us, and now that scale is balanced. What does it mean to be justified? To be justified is to be declared righteous or without blame in God's sight because our sins are now forgiven. And when we trust in God and his promise of salvation in Christ, God credits it to us as righteousness We are sinless before him when we put our trust in him. When Paul speaks of justification or being justified, it would be accurate for us to picture in our minds a courtroom. For that's what the words are. That's that's the language. It's courtroom language. It's as if we are standing before the righteous judge. We have broken his law and we stand guilty before him. We await his sentence and know our crimes are worthy of death. And he begins to speak. We brace ourselves because we know from his word we are doomed. But to our shock, the judge declares, not guilty, you are free to go. How is it possible? Did God suddenly recall some exceptionally good work that we had done that weighed out our scale? No. The only thing that any of us have contributed to the process of our salvation is our sin. That's our only contribution. See, in our stubborn minds, even hearing that, some of us might think, well, come come on now, there are good things that I have done. But if we could truly understand that next to God, all of our righteousness, all the good things that we have done, the Bible tells us are like filthy rags. 
God who loves us is full of grace, though, and he has provided redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He provided a way for the penalty that we owed to be paid, and he did this by presenting Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Christ died in our place, and by shedding his blood, he paid the penalty on our behalf. There's nothing we could do. Since we rely on Christ's sacrifice alone and not ourselves, boasting is impossible. Romans 3.27 <laughs> The only way to walk as a Christian is to walk humbly. Why do we walk humbly? Because we understand that in us is nothing good. In us, there is nothing that we deserve but but death, but the price that Christ paid. And it's an understanding that, that there is a liberty because we could never be good enough. We could never be enough. And so we can never boast that we are enough. We can only bow before our loving God in thanks for his love and the precious gift of grace, that, that undeserved favor, rejoicing that being now justified or made right by his blood, we can be saved from punishment through him. We're saved from his punishment, from what his word has declared is punishment. Uh, sin, it, the punishment of sin is death. His word declared it, and we can be saved from that because our sins are forgiven. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal debt, which stood against us, which condemned us, and he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. What what a, a scripture that, that when he was nailed to the cross, we have to understand that it was our personal sin that was nailed to the cross that day dead. Jesus loved us so much that he sacrificed himself to set us free from the penalty of sin, and there is no greater love. So if God, the judge, has declared me not guilty because my sins are forgiven, will my sins ever be able to condemn me, to make me guilty in God's sight? If he has nailed my debt of sin to the cross, do I have to ever doubt my salvation? We all deal with those questions. Our freedom from the power of sin begins when we are set free from the penalty of sin. It is just the beginning, and it does not end there. Jesus loved us so much that he sacrificed himself to set us free from the enslaving control sin has over us. Jesus said that to live a life characterized by sinning is slavery. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Those are the words of Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 34. Christ's love for his followers would not allow him to leave them under the lash of sin, but has provided a way for us to live free from sin. So how does Christ save us from sin's enslaving control? Jesus said, if you abide, abide means to stay to live. If you stay in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, we we like these scriptures. You hear this, you know, said, um, 
you know, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed, or you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. People, people quote those words often not even in context to what it's actually talking about because the beginning of that scripture, the beginning of that portion of scripture tells us that we have to live in, we have to stay in the word of the Lord. We have to be his disciples, following after his word, knowing his word, and then we will know the truth and the truth will make us free. We've got to stay in his word. Staying or abiding in his word is not simply stuffing our brains with religious knowledge, but it is living in relationship with the word made flesh. John 1.14 tells us that, that Jesus Christ is the word made flesh. And it is embracing his teaching that he alone is the Savior, and as such, he alone provides the power to live free from sin through his Spirit. And just as we could not be freed from the penalty of sin through our own ability, we cannot be freed from the control of sin through our own ability. Freedom comes from the work of Christ's Spirit in us. Continual, that continual work of His Spirit in us. Our salvation from sin begins in just a moment, but it continues for a lifetime. The Bible says that we are being perfected. We're not made perfect, but we are being perfected. Um, at a moment, God forgives us and declares us righteous. And though now we are blameless before Him, He doesn't immediately make us fully or actually righteous righteous. We're not transformed instantly into perfect people who will never sin, but we are indeed regenerated by the Spirit. We are given new spiritual life. We are at that moment justified or made right, but this is not the end. It is just the beginning of a long process called sanctification in God, which actually makes us in reality what he has already declared us to be in Christ, righteous. When we're sanctified, we're set apart. We're pulled out of the world. We're set apart to him. And it is a process. Though sin does not cease to exert its influence on us at the moment we're saved, the sin's power over our lives is broken. So we still fight temptation. We still uh, struggle with sin. But that power is broken and, and we have a, a power within us to overcome the sin that we so easily fell to. Our slavery to, to, to sin um, is so thoroughly broken that Paul described it as us dying to it. That Specifically, that we died to sin and were freed from its power when we died, were buried, and were raised with Christ in baptism and through the saving work of the Spirit. Romans 6, 7 through 8 says, For he who has died has been free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We're made free, that we may walk with him free from sin. What a promise. What a promise. And, I mean, really, when it comes down to it, it is so important that we understand how little power we have on our own. I, I mean, we, we need him. We need him. We need him every single day. We should be down on our knees every day expressing to the Lord, I can't live this day without you. I need you today. 
Paul explained that before we are in Christ, we are carnal. We are sold under sin. And the good we want to do, we can't do. He said, I want to do good, but I can't do it. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. This law of sin is ever-present, warring against us and making us slaves to sin. It is a wretched life of slavery. And by ourselves, we cannot be freed from it. There's the key. By ourselves, we cannot be freed from it. The world has a philosophy that there are certain things, certain addictions, certain struggles that are there just forever. But God says we can be freed. We can be new creatures in him. Thanks be to God who who we we are free how by the power of the spirit paul proclaimed the law of the spirit of life in christ jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death we have victory over sin we're not only freed from sin's penalty or that payment but we are no longer condemned because we are forgiven and justified we we now come before the lord without the shame of our sin. Because we might remember it, and the people around us might remember it, but but God has forgiven us. And he is not thinking of our sin or remembering our sin. What a liberty and what a freedom in that. When we have the fullness of the Spirit in our lives, we are also freed from sin's control. And when we walk in the Spirit, God empowers us to do what we were never able to do on our own to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. We can actually live a life characterized by obeying God's moral law, something only Christ's spirit makes possible. In his love, Jesus has given us his spirit, and the law of his spirit at work in us is greater than the law of sin. He's greater. You know, we have... We need to stop. We need to stop condemning ourselves when he's forgiven us. We need to stop giving power over to those uh, to, to that shame that would like to overtake us because he has forgiven us. And we can have faith in what his word is saying, that we have been forgiven and justified and that we have power to overcome these things, power to overcome bad attitudes that used to be, power to overcome bad thought processes that used to be. These are things that we don't, we don't think so much that... The, about when we talk about freedom from sin or freedom from our past. But um, so many people come into the to the church, come into the body of Christ with mindsets that are wrong and with things that have happened in the past that have kind of set them on a course of, of being negative or complaining or having um, just being down on themselves. But, but let's understand that even the sins that we can so obviously point out or the shortcomings that we can so obviously point out, Those things are easy to say, yes, we've overcome those things by the Spirit. But let's look at every little thing in our life. Let's look at the fruit of the Spirit. We have the ability through the power of His Spirit to have the fruit of the Spirit active in our lives at all time. That's so powerful. Each of us have experienced the flesh still lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, as Galatians 5.17 says. But despite this struggle, if we live according to the spirit and set our minds on the things of the spirit, 
remembering Paul's admonition to present ourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, we can experience such consistent victory, consistent victory, daily victory. It is not the will of God that our victory only comes once a month at a shout and service at church or at an altar call once, a, every, once every while at church. No, it is the will of God that we have consistent victory in our lives over sin. That saying we have died to sin is not just uh, an expression that we use, uh, but it is an accurate description of our present reality every single day. And in that reality, we can rejoice and say with Jesus, Jesus, that those whom the Son has set free is free indeed. I want you to think, what are some practical things that you can do this week to live according to the Spirit and to set our minds on the things of the Spirit? I'll give you two, and they're very obvious. (laughs) But as the Word said, we need to stay and live in the Word of God. We need to find ways to be digesting the Word of God in our lives every single day. That's time with the Lord and his word, but maybe that's listening. We've got great technology now, and we can listen to sermons. We can listen to uplifting podcasts. There are things so available to us to keep us in the word of God. That may mean that you need to turn off your favorite television show that doesn't, doesn't, doesn't line up with the word of God. That may mean that some of the music that you listen to is going to be turned off because it's not jiving with the spirit of God that's in you. But he's calling us to consistent victory. Another thing we can do is daily pray. Daily come before the Lord, telling him that we would be crucified with him, that we will be dead to sin. Telling him that he can have control over our lives, putting on the armor of the Lord, praying that we would have the fruit of the Spirit consistently in our life. These are two things that help us be overcomers and consistently victorious. I'm so thankful for the love of God and that he would not just die for us, but leave us his word that would give us such great answers for the questions that we have. Let's pray. God, thank you so very much for your word. Thank you, Lord God, for the sacrifice that you made that we can live victorious every single day. Touch every person listening. Minister to them and help them, Lord, to rely completely on you. That is the key. We trust in you. We rely on you for life. In Jesus' name, amen.